If you have not been getting my notes um, in the email or you haven't been following, you'll be like, wait a minute, I thought we were in Hebrews. Well, we still are, just taking a, a little slight detour today in Ezekiel chapter 20. And I'll be reading and preaching for you out of Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 10, oops, excuse me, 10 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which, if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. For this word, we thank you that you have proclaimed these things by the testimony of hundreds, thousands of people throughout your word and throughout the history of mankind that you have now provided for us here in this word, something that would transform us, that we would believe and that we would know and that we would know that you are the one you have done the work. Through your Son's death and resurrection, you are sanctifying us. You have deemed us holy, that now as we worship you, you can hear our praises, you can hear our prayers, and we can truly celebrate this good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Again, I don't mean to throw a curveball to you today um, about this sermon passage by going into Ezekiel. We're not going to do a, a sermon series on Ezekiel. But um, as I was finishing up chapter 4, and we're getting ready to go into a portion of Hebrews that fleshes out more and more of how Jesus is our great high priest. And one of the things inside of that is um, highlighting that he is a priest by the order of Melchizedek. You have the, the name Melchizedek spoken in Hebrews more than you have in the Old Testament, which is the introduction of Melchizedek. And it's a, a very a mysterious um, but wonderful um, priesthood. It's, it's really even hard to how to describe who Melchizedek is. And um, the reason why we had today in our lectionary reading, the reading from Genesis, is um, actually I put that in there because um, during this time of year between um, Easter and Pentecost, um, the lectionary readings are focused on preparing us for Pentecost and they replace the Old Testament reading with the readings through Acts to get us ready for Pentecost, which is a fine and, and good thing to do in of itself. But one, uh, we just got out of Acts. Um, and then two, um, it's always like to still have an Old Testament reading. And so I thought we could change that up a little bit. And so I actually had the reading in Genesis today because it's preparing for the introduction of Melchizedek. And so hopefully that will dovetail into where the sermon is going to be going next week. But I felt like that this week I wanted to wrap up 
Um, as we leave Moses, as we leave uh, this, well, not so much leave, but as we transition from the theme of rest to more of the theme of, his, of Christ being our great high priest, I thought I would wrap up the theme. I felt like a couple of Sundays ago I may have left some things hanging, and so I'm going to try to um, dovetail it in a little bit better today. And, and through my studies, I found this passage in Ezekiel, and I felt that it was a very rich passage for us and a very helpful passage for us to be able to maybe um, have more solid understanding of what God is trying to teach his people about rest, about Sabbath. If you remember from last week, we had three particular instructions um, that we were to be holding on to. The one to let us strive to enter that rest, enter God's rest, which is basically trusting God, trusting his word and promises, resting in the work of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we were told to hold fast our confession. And what is our confession? Just as we had confessed together now, our confession is that it is Jesus Christ that is our rest in our high priest. And then lastly, to draw near, to let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, to receive grace and mercy in a time of need, and that we see that there is a true active presence of that rest in our life now, that as we are striving to hold on to Jesus Christ, there is this already entering into the definitive understanding that we are in the rest of Christ, but not yet waiting for a final rest to come. But inside of this time, there is an actual rest given to us. There is rest to be experienced by understanding his grace and his mercy. And not that I think maybe the writer of Hebrews may have been reading Ezekiel the same passage. I'm not trying to make a a, a perfect parallel, but I saw a parallel in this passage as as I was studying about the Sabbath and studying about the rest, because we see that the writer of Hebrews is wanting to remind the Hebrews and wanting to remind us the mindset about rest for the covenant people of God was ultimately that rest, that Sabbath, is gospel. And it has always been about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it didn't just transition from the Old into the New Testament, that there was this one practical kind of thing about rest over here, and that God just used it as a prop to show what kind of Christ and Messiah that we have, but that even in the Old Testament, throughout all of the teaching of the Sabbath, it was always about the gospel of Jesus Christ. First of all, if we look there in verse 10 in Ezekiel 20, it says, So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. Just as a continual tip that I've given you before and give you again, you always want to look for the verbs. We want to look for the verbs in this subject and what action is going on here. It says that I led them out of the land of Egypt. I brought them into the wilderness. The first thing that we see here that's a parallel is that he led, he gave salvation to us. That this particular message of striving to enter that rest is given to a people that God had already rescued. God had rescued the Jews, God's people in the Old Testament, and he has ultimately rescued us 
as all of God's people, both Jews and Gentiles, through the work of Jesus Christ, he is the one who has delivered us from the slavery of sin and has now brought us into this already but not yet time, which we could consider to be the wilderness. In many regards, that is the reason why the writer of the Hebrews was writing the letter to the Hebrews is because the Christian Hebrews, which is also for us as the Christian everyone, is that we are in this time of already not wilderness, but it's a greater time. It's not like the wilderness of old, but it is somewhat like it in the sense that we have not fully entered into his rest, but we are a people of salvation. We've already been slave, I mean, been freed from our slavery. We've been rescued. We're in the refuge of God. And so here we go back and we look that we're remembering that it is God that led them out of the land. He's the one who freed them, and he has brought them into this wilderness. Just as we are told to let us strive to enter that rest, we are being reminded that God has already accomplished that work, and therefore he's already accomplished that rest. And then secondly, it says, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Again, we look at the verb and the subject. I gave them. God gave this. This is a gift. It is truly a gift to God's people that they received at that time the Lord's statutes and laws because what did it provide? It provided life. That is good news. Now, most of us, when we think about the law of God, when we think about the statutes of God, we don't typically think about that being good news. We are typically on the other end of that, where we're like, we couldn't keep the law, just like the rich young ruler. Therefore, we have the good news that we don't have to be able to obey the law to be able to receive his grace. But what it is here is still that there is life and there is good news that God is communicating to us and to them, ultimately, the character of who he is. And he is also instituting for us a way to live our life that actually, ultimately, provides earthly and eternal rest. Now, there is that conflict that we can't keep this law, and we automatically are going to be in strife because of the difficulty is that we're not able to do this. But it's not the character and the heart of the law that's the problem. It's the sin that we have in our life that is the problem. So we are to hold our fast, our confession, that it is Jesus Christ who accomplished the fullness of the law. And therefore, because he accomplished the fullness of the law, we have that life. So there's this parallel. It's not because of just life given to us randomly. It's because of our confession in Jesus Christ that we're able to experience the life that comes from understanding the character of God. And then lastly, another gift in verse 12, and this is kind of the highlight and the point of the whole sermon today, is moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And this is kind of, I think, one of the most potent verses, and I'm going to give a lot of other verses as well, as telling us and teaching us that in the Old Testament, that all of the teaching about the Sabbath is ultimately about the gospel. 
That whenever you hear the word Sabbath, I hope that you will leave here today and you will not think, oh, some burdensome restriction on a particular day or the difficulty of being able to, to do this or that without all of this ceremonial type of activity. No, that you would actually understand the heart of what God was saying. He says it here in his word in Ezekiel, I gave them this gift of Sabbath so that you would know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you who redeems you, who sets you and makes you holy. Now, how is that possible? We see the conflict that the law highlights for us that we're not holy. But right there in the middle of the law, right there in the middle of the Ten Commandments, there at commandment number four, there is this calling to honor the Sabbath and to enter into it with rest and to grant it. And I believe that the fourth commandment and I think this is a good argument, is the most gospel-centered commandment in the Ten Commandments. We don't want it to just disappear from our mind. Now, things have changed. There is a different application of how we live our lives week by week, but it is. The Sabbath was the highlight, and throughout all of the Old Testament, Parallel and synonymous to the law, the Lord was always speaking about the Sabbath. And when the people were breaking the law, he would ultimately say, you're breaking my Sabbaths. And it wasn't because it was this hyper-restriction. It's because Sabbath, again, means cessation and celebration. What is the calling of the gospel? To repent and to believe, to have faith, to ultimately to rest and celebrate that it is the Lord that sanctifies us. The rich young ruler came to a place, and we hope that it was Mark and that he eventually came to this conclusion, but we see the disciples talking about it afterwards, saying, how can anybody accomplish this? How can anybody accomplish the law? And Jesus answers with, man, this is not possible, but with God, all things are possible. In the middle of the law, the Lord was reminding us that it's going to have to be his work and his rest that we're depending upon. The failure that we see of the Jews of the Old Testament was that they did not understand the same exact thing that the rich young ruler did not understand. They were going to have to depend and rest in the Lord. They were going to have to cease from them trying to be their own gods and them trying to do it all. And they were going to have to rest and believe in the good news that it is God's work and God's rest that will make them sanctified, that will make them holy. The gospel is good news. That's what the word means. The Sabbath was good news to them, that this is not possible. It was right in the middle for them. The gospel is unique. It is separate. It is the very unique thing in all of the world. There's nothing like the gospel in any other ideology or any other religion. The idea that the Lord lays it all out like he does and he says, and I will do this. And he does it from the very beginning with creation and then with redemption and then continuing on with how Christ is continuing to do his work at the right hand. It is the Lord who is ruling and reigning. But he grants all of the benefits of his work and his rest to his people. It is a very unique thing. And we have that unique 
ability to be able to enter in and to live in that rest. The gospel is also liberty. The whole idea of gospel is that we're being set free from bondage. That is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. And it's highlighted as we go back and we look at the Jews of the Old Testament that it's very heavily about liberty, but it continues to be about constant liberty. What is liberty? It is rest. What, what is it rest from? It's rest from captivity, but it's to be entering into and living in the life of God. We have a liberty to live out what God intended for us. Gospel is rest. Gospel is rest from our work, but rest from our striving. And ultimately, just as the old teaches and the new, the gospel is Jesus Christ. What are the two things, again, that are the primary realities of what the message of the Hebrews is? Is one, that Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament patriarchs, practices, and promises. And Christ is better. He is the bestest over all of these things. And therefore, our calling and our pursuit is better. Our life now, our experience in this wilderness and the trials and the tribulation, the difficulties, the opposition, the sufferings, the persecutions, it's better than what they experienced in the wilderness. They were living in shadows. And now we can see how even in our time of wilderness, the Lord is continuing to bring forth the reign of his rest. And so our lives, whether you understand it or not, are the bestest. Christ is the bestest of all things. And therefore, those who are in him, we are living the bestest of life that we could live until that time of completion and glory. You may not believe that. You may not think that. And I believe it's a deception that we have been given by Satan to be confused and understanding these things that have been taught to us and things that are promises to us in God's word. And we've maybe added layers to what God has said, and we've... I think perverted and misunderstood and lost out on the benefit of what the word teaches. Just to take a break and kind of maybe highlight my point a little bit. Does anybody know? I don't have any water. I'm starting to get parched. (laughs) Does anybody know who is Humpty Dumpty? No, my kids can't answer this question. Sorry, I, I can't hold back on my... I start talking to my kids about things I'm thinking about preaching about. And so, sorry, family, you're disqualified. You can't answer the question. Who is Humpty Dumpty? William? An egg. An egg. Anybody disagree with William? He does not say that he's an egg. Why do we think that Humpty Dumpty is an egg? What do you imagine when you think of Humpty Dumpty? You think of a round-looking egg with these little short arms and short legs, and he's sitting, sitting on the wall, and then you may have seen many pictures where he's fallen, and then his, egg is, his head is cracked open, and maybe you know, egg-like material coming out of, his, out of the egg. And that's the mindset. If you Google right now, if it pictures of Humpty Dumpty, you will find that 99.99999% of them are going to be a picture of a of an egg-looking person. And the interesting thing is, is that it was never intended to be an egg or even an egg-like person. That there is a book called Looking Through the Looking Glass. 
that's ultimately about Alice in Wonderland. And if you read that book, there's a scene in that particular book where I think it's Alice's is pulling out an egg, and then the egg turns and morphs into an egg-like person, and she refers to that particular person as Humpty Dumpty. And ever since then, everyone has referred to Humpty Dumpty of that poem as an egg-like person. It was the writer of Through the Looking Glass that transformed that. But the original intent of that poem is that the Humpty Dumpty was an English Civil War cannon that sat on a wall and had a great fall. (laughs) And all the king's um, horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It was a cannon. Nothing like an egg. Had nothing to do with that. But as we have had transformed our thoughts because of some other story that had a significant impact on us, we've lost the original intent of what the writing intended. It's interesting how the English are anyway. A lot of their their nursery rhymes are kind of whacked anyway. I mean, you know that um, Ring Around the Rosies about the Black Plague. Um, Three Blind Mice is about the conflict between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants and the three blind mice are supposed to be the Protestants. And it's just, you know, it's all kind of weird. And you're thinking, why are the, like, the, these kids are going to be messed up? <laughs> like all this weird stuff that they had. You know, Rockabye Baby when the cradle falls. I mean, that's violent. That's scary. I don't understand that. But it kind of shows you that sometimes things get into our head and we start thinking about particular things that have nothing to do with the original intent. And I believe... That today, as Christians, as we read all of the scriptures, and when we hear the word Sabbath, we kind of have this negative reaction. And a lot of it's probably right, because even in the gospel New Testament time, God's people were having a hard time of grasping on to what was about the Sabbath. It's always been a problem. It's always been a problem for people to understand, ultimately, what God was teaching about the gospel. About the fact is that we see here that the very point that he gave them, he gifted them the Sabbath so that they would know that he is the one that sanctifies them. As he gives them the law, he's telling them, guess what? You can't sanctify yourself. You can't obey this law. You're going to need Sabbath. You're going to have to rest in me. And so I command you, rest in me. Rest in my work. Rest in what I am doing. You can't do it. I'm teaching you every day. You can't do it because you're going to have to go to bed. You're going to have to rest and I'll take care of things while you're asleep. I'm going to give you times weekly to be reminded that you can't do this. You need to remember that I am taking care of this. Enter into my work. Enter into my rest. And then he gave them seasons. And he was teaching them over and over again, you can't do it. So what does that mean for us today? If Sabbath is gospel, how do we apply it today? Well, we can tell that there are things from the Old Testament into the New Testament that there is discontinuity. Does anybody know what discontinuity means? What does continuity mean? That there's a consistency, there's a continuation. Well, discontinuity means there's things that are no longer consistent, that are, there's, there's longer the continuity between the old and the new. And I'm just going to go through and reference some of these very quickly. Again, we can't put a, 
a huge amount of time into this today. It's a huge study in of itself, but I wanted to kind of hopefully end this particular portion of the, of the scripture with highlighting these things. One, in the discontinuity in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 through 12, that we have a Christian liberty concerning the observance of days. We know that we were told by Paul in Romans, to the church of Rome in Rome, and for us, Today, that there are certain things about the Old Testament when it came to the observance of days, that there's no longer this binding to those particular observance of days. And so, therefore, we have Christian liberty. Well, what do we have Christian liberty from? And what do we have Christian liberty to? Whenever you're freed from something, you are now given something else to enjoy. You're never just kind of floating out into space. When I was a kid, I used to, I think I've shared this with you years ago, that I used to try to imagine nothingness and just like the space between here and here and here and here, if that's all there was, what would that be like? <laughs> it was just nothing. Well, there's never anything like that. There's no nothing. That's <laughs> because God is ever more present and he has created his creation. And so we cannot be removed from, from liberty. There's no more of this without there being something that we're now in. What are we in? Well, Romans 14 also reminds us, verses 5 through 12, that we are not our own. So we're not like freed from something and been brought into our own thing that we just can do whatever we want to do. So I was driving by the golf courses today and I was watching people playing golf and I was like, well, maybe they worship last night. Some people may have this Sabbath understanding or worshiping on the Sabbath and worshiping on the seventh day and maybe they worship at night or maybe they're not worshiping at all or maybe, and I got it, maybe it's just judgmental. Maybe they're just worshiping themselves. Well, we haven't been given the liberty to be free to worship ourselves. It says in Romans 14, when we're told about this liberty, that we are not our own, but we are Christ. We have been freed from the slavery of sin, and we're now slaves of Christ. So that liberty should have an impact of what we're now occupied with. If we've been freed from something, if, if there was something about the shadows of the observance of certain days in the Old Testament, that means now it's even better that we are beyond the shadows and into the reality of who Christ is. And that should have a distinctive difference. Something should be going on in our lives that is proclaiming the ultimate point of what God was giving us in shadows. Galatians 4, chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. It, he tells us not to turn back to the weak and the worthless, not to go back to the shadows, because we now have what? We have Christ. And again, I'm trying to tie this connection here is that what we see in Ezekiel was pointing to how God was going to sanctify us. And so he was giving us the gift of Sabbath so that we could begin to experience Christ. And now we have Christ. And so everything that's supposed to continue in its understanding of what the Sabbath is, in its rest, in its goodness, has now been elevated in Christ. We don't want to go back to shadows. Into the burden of the law that we cannot accomplish ourselves, but we want to go deeper into the Sabbath of that celebration that we now have the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, it tells us not to pass judgment concerning food, drink, festival, new moon, or Sabbath, because these are shadows when the substance is Christ. It's not to be caught up with these festivals and the foods. 
in the Sabbath when we have Sabbath in Christ. It's like the angels. We have to remember that the angels are the servants of Christ. We have to remember that Moses was a servant of Christ, that all of this has been fulfilled and highlighted in Christ. It's not that we no longer think about Moses. We no longer think about angels. We no longer think about foods or we no longer think about these things. But that's not the essence. It is a shadow. We have now been given the substance, which is Christ. So that's the discontinuity, that there is a transformation from moving out of the shadows of the ceremonial and entering into the reality of Christ's rest. So what is the continuity that we see throughout all of Scripture? Well, we know from Hebrews that the continuity of one place is in creation, that the Sabbath is tied to the rest that God did at creation. And I believe there's two things going on there. One is to show us that God is the creator, that he is the one who did all of this, and that he rested from his work, and therefore we are to also be thinking about resting in the fact that he has done his work, but we also are to rest that he is still doing his work. He's the one that's doing all of this. You ever think about the fact that we are sometimes just stressing out way too much as if we have some kind of impact of what, keeping the world together? I mean, if you read the news, ultimately the end message of the news is we're going to mess it all up. <laughs> it's all going to fall apart. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to all just fall. It's going to be over. We're going to get hit by an asteroid because we didn't do something right. Or it's all the pollution is going to take over us. You know, it's like we're getting stressed out about so many things. We'll bring it a little closer to home. Do, like, like we think that we're going to be able to actually provide and do everything for our homes or for our church. You know, I start getting stressed out. You know, we go into the church building and there's always something new. You know, like yesterday, it was like, Hey, there's some moisture in that room over there. Or let's look at the, and it's like, oh my goodness, we're never going to get this building done. <laughs> you, know, it's like, you know what? The Lord got us here this far. He's going to take care of whatever we need. There's no reason to stress out. He's got, he, he made the earth. <laughs> he created the earth. And then he rested in the goodness of it. We too can rest the fact that he is God and we are not. So that's a continuity. Does anybody want to let that go and leave that in the Old Testament. Say, no, 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 let's, let's change that. No, we want that to be a continuity of how we understand Sabbath. How we understand cessation from our, you know, thinking that we've got all of it under control. And then celebrating God is God. And he's doing fine <laughs> with being God. He doesn't need to be replaced. Secondly, we know also from looking at the law, not only is it tied to creation, but it's obviously tied to redemption, this freedom from slavery. And we see now that it's been highlighted and we celebrated even even more so last week with the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have been freed from death and sin. That we have now the fullness of that Sabbath. That redemption is a continuity of continuing to look forward to that same rest that the writer of Hebrews is telling us about. That we have a rest that's still to come. We're in this already not yet wilderness looking for the finishing of that rest. How many people want to abandon (laughs) redemption and freedom from sin and death and slavery? No, that's a continuity that we want to continue to have that he is God, he is redeemer, and then lastly, a continuity that is definitely in the scriptures that we see, and we see it highlighted specifically in Jesus Christ when he comes in the gospel, is the continuity of evangelism, the proclamation 
of good news. The proclamation of Sabbath, the proclamation of rest, the proclamation of freedom. And it was in the Old Testament, it was in the law, it was a proclamation for evangelism. Not only is the fourth commandment, I think the most gospel-centered commandment, it is the most evangelistic commandment because it's telling us to grant rest to other people, to grant mercy, to grant Sabbath. And it was meant to be all along. If God's saying that the Sabbath was for us to understand that it is he that is doing the work, that is he who is redeeming us and sanctifying us and making us holy, that the point of the fourth commandment is for us to, to proclaim to others that God makes sinful people holy. So the fourth commandment was an evangelistic commandment for us. How many of us want to give that up and say, let's leave that in the Old Testament, that Jesus has come, he has freed us, we no longer have to have captivity of thinking about him being God of our creation, we no longer have to think about him being the God of redemption and salvation, and we no longer have to be about granting grace and rest. Well, if that is your view of Sabbath, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> because God tells us that if you're not willing to grant that liberty and that freedom, and to proclaim that to others, then you too will not be able to experience it. If you have liberty, what do you have liberty to do? We well, have liberty to, to go to the fullness of this celebration that God has given us. These are not things that we want to be passed away. To end my point, I've got a few passages that I'm going to go through and to just highlight, I believe, the purpose of Sabbath. And then it should have an impact, and I can't, as the, the, words, uh, the Lord tells us, that I can't judge you specifically of how you go about with the incremental elements of your day and week to live this out. But I can tell you that God has made it very clear that the essence of the Christian life should be very much about Sabbath. One, that we are entering into trusting into his rest, and we are proclaiming his rest and his mercy to others. Number one, in Leviticus 23, verse 3, it says, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwelling places. We know that the purpose of the Sabbath is we're thinking about the redemption and the sanctification of God making us holy. That the, definitely a thing that is very clear is that he wants us to rest to experience rest, and he wants us to worship. And as you see there in Leviticus, you begin to understand just very simply why today that the Christian church has highlighted that we need to be those who rest and grant rest, but we're also to be those who worship. That is why the, that there's been such, throughout Christian history for the last 2,000 years, even though there's been debate and discussion about how and when, that's ultimately been the highlight is that we're to be worshiping God and resting in him. In Exodus 20, 8 through 11, this is the command in the fourth commandment. Again, with everything that I've said, including everything through Hebrews, think about what I'm saying here when it comes to the evangelistic nature of the gospel proclamation of this law. Remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth and in all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We were commanded to enter into his rest and to grant rest. What did Jesus do in the gospel when he came? And particularly on the Sabbath, when the Jewish Pharisees were trying to corner Jesus, whenever they would come after him about the Sabbath, what was he doing? He was granting rest. He was granting healing. He was allowing there to be refreshment. He was not breaking the Sabbath. He was obeying the Sabbath. It was the gospel proclamation that Jesus gave us an example in the gospel that we should be about those who grant rest. Brothers and sisters, do you grant rest to one another? It's not just talking about, you know, all the hard work, like, you know, working at the church. No, let's keep shoveling that gravel. It's like, no, let's, let's, get, a, let's get a loader. You know, it's not just that, but it's rest in the tension of the home. It's rest from people by remind, not reminding them of their continual faults or there's a hundred thousand million different ways to grant rest to each other. And you know that because ultimately you long for it yourself to grant mercy and rest to each other, to be prayerful and thinking, how can we lift the burdens from other people? What can we be doing? How can we strive to grant rest? You know, it's interesting in one of the debates of the last 2000 years, there's been a, groups of Christians that have said, you know, it's not so much about you resting from your work. It's that you definitely, though, make sure you're granting other people rest from their work. There's actually somewhat of a doctrinal thinking that we should be elevating our work continually to grant more people more rest. So there's definitely the calling from Christians that we see from the very fourth commandment and on to be people who are granting mercy. Well, how did the Israelites handle God's Sabbath. Well, we know clearly that that was the thing that bothered him the most, that they did not enter into that, but they also didn't enter into that because of how they didn't treat people. We see in Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, it says that Amos says, This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? What do you think he said? A basket of summer fruit. (laughs) I always love narratives like that. I see a basket of summer fruit. And he says, Then the Lord said, The end has come upon my people Israel. I'll never again pass by them. The songs of the temple have become wellings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They're thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And that the Sabbath, that we may offer the wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. It says that the complaint from God's people was, when is the Sabbath going to be over? When do we get to stop resting When do we get to stop granting rest to other people so that we can make the shekel great, that we can bring profit, that we can get back to selling grain, 
and that we can get back to selling and trading slaves, the poor and the needy, using the poor and the needy for our own benefit, for our own earthly comforts and rest, that they were anxious for the Sabbath to be over so that they could get back to building their own little kingdoms. And God said, so many dead bodies. So many dead bodies. I can't stand this. I can't give grace to these people. I can't give rest to these people because they're not willing to give rest to the poor and the needy. We see this again in Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 8 through 9. It says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zechariah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. So there was this proclamation. We see that in God's word, in his law, he said that after six years, on the seventh year, you should grant liberty to your own slaves, your Hebrew slaves. And what it says here is that God's people, they would do that. They would repent and they would free them, but then they would buy them back. And in verse 17 of that chapter, it says, Therefore, says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, rest, everyone to his brother and his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword. Going to be, you think you have liberty, the liberty to do whatever you want to do? In neglect, granting the evangelistic grace to other people, well, I'll give you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. It's always been about the gospel. It's always been about grace. He was telling them, you can't do this. You need to rest, and you need to proclaim rest and good news to others in your care, particularly those who are under you or weaker than you or those who are needy and poor, grant them the proclamation of good news. Grant them rest. And they would not. They would go back to their own works, to their own kingdom, really to their own throne that they believe they have as their own God. But here's what it's supposed to look like. In Jeremiah 17, and I'm going to give you all these verses in my worship email if you... If you're like, trying to write all these down, I'll, I'll throw them out there to you this week. Jeremiah 17, verses 19 through 27. Thus says the Lord to me, go and stand in the people's gate by which the kings of Judah enter and by which they go out. And in all the gates of Jerusalem and say, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives. And do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it into the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I've commanded your fathers. Now listen, he was saying now, when you enter into Jerusalem, when you're entering in, remember this whole idea of striving to enter in the rest. He's saying, do not carry these burdens. Do not carry this work. Do not carry these sins. Do not carry the things of the world with you when you enter into my presence. But yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. But here's what he tells them. He says, here's how it could have been. This is what it could have been like if you would have listened to me, Israel. 
says, but if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and you bring no burden by the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but you keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of the city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall be inhabited forever, and the people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, and from the land of Benjamin, from the Shephelah, and the hill country, and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not listen, Listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden or enter the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. This is an amazing passage, brothers and sisters, because he tells them, he says, if you would have obeyed my Sabbath, if you would have entered into my gospel rest, it would have exploded out into the whole world. And all of these kings and princes would be brought in and they would be coming to worship me and bringing grain offerings and frankincense. You get that? And he says, but instead, because you didn't, I'm going to destroy this temple. Now it's judgment, but guess what? (laughs) It's also a continuation of promise because he did all of those things. He destroyed the temple because they did not keep his Sabbaths. But because Jesus did come and he obeyed the Sabbath, everything that he said that would have happened is happening. It has happened. When Jesus came, they brought the frankincense. Kings were being from all over the world are coming in and they're coming into his temple and they are coming into his church. He is coming before God's people. He both brought forth the judgment on the temple and he built and resurrected the temple of his own body. And he is calling all of these people to come and enter into his rest. The answer is, but Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, is what he was called. And he told us that it was for man that this was given to us, that this was a gift to man. This wasn't just to to beef his own glory up. It did glorify him even more. But he was bringing us into that rest, a mercy and a time of need, as the writer of Hebrews says. John 8, 36 tells us that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's a better freedom. It's a better rest. It's a better gospel evangelism. It's an it's a explosion of that evangelism in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. Isn't that wonderful that all of us get to enjoy this rest? He is telling us that he is forgiving us of our trespasses. So what are we supposed to do? We are to forgive other people their trespasses. We are to grant Sabbath rest to others. But... If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We have to be those who live Sabbath and grant Sabbath. And then we see in Psalm 72, and I'll close here, and if you have your Bibles with you, read this with me, and then we will close. This is a fulfilled passage in Christ. And continues to be fulfilled for us each day. 
Psalm 72, verses 1 through 19. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on moon grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and from the river to the ends of the earth. Excuse me. And may enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their lives and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live and may gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us from these words the gospel proclamation of your work and rest through Jesus Christ. May these words resonate in our hearts that we would not forget to observe what you have done in creation and redemption and what you have done in calling us to the ministry of reconciliation and rest. Father, we do not want to be those who miss out on your rest. Help us to strive to enter in, to hold fast our confession, to with confidence draw near to you, to the throne of grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us